you will turn with me to Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. We are down to our last two or three sermons in Romans. Paul is, in chapter 16, greeting a lot of people, sending greetings from a bunch of people. He's wrapping things up, so it's a little harder to preach some of the things that uh, you find in the end here. <clears throat> but uh, he, he, in the middle of sending uh, uh, greetings to folks there and sending Peter, um, <clears throat> greetings from folks that are with him, he has this interlude that we're going to look at today, 17 to 20, uh, which we're going to say he gives some final instructions, three final instructions to, to uh, watch out, to serve Jesus, and to hope in the God of peace. Romans chapter 16, 17 to 20. Hear then the word of God. Paul says that I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you. We've come to worship. We've come to see you high and lifted up and to offer ourselves to you in song, in prayer. And even now, we offer our hearts and our minds to you to be submissive to your word. Father, speak it to your church with truth and power, that it might shape us, that it might shape our our thinking and our living, that we might be obedient, that we might follow Jesus in all these ways. For we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's an abrupt shift. Paul is, if you were here last week or were able to see it, that he greeted some 25 or 26 people that were there in the church in Rome. So he's running through this list and he's saying nice things about them, things he remembers about them, ways that he loves them and he appreciates their service and he's walking through this. And then there's this abrupt shift from the last thing he says in verse 16 is to greet one another with a holy kiss to this fairly harsh warning to those who cause division. It seems abrupt, but it seems like as Paul is um, thinking about this list of people, thinking about real people that he knows, uh, that he loves, and that he knows their service, and he knows their heart, And as he's greeting them and going through what he knows of the church there in Rome, um, he's inspired to give this warning because he loves them and he wants to protect them. Paul and God take the peace and the purity of his church seriously. And he loves his people. He loves all the people on that list. He loves his church. And he wants there to be peace and purity, health and unity. And so God takes it very seriously. He is jealous for the health and the unity of the body of Christ. This comes across in so many passages throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
so many passages. I'm going to quote some to you as we go along, but I had to refrain myself from just... He takes it very seriously. He talks about it a lot. It's positively expressed in Jesus' high and priestly prayer in John 13 to 17. He's in the upper room with his disciples and he ends his time of dinner and teaching and praying with them. And in John 17, 21, he says about his church uh, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. There is no more profound unity that is possible than the unity of the Father and the Son, that they may be one, even as we are one, that they may be in us and share in this life of God and and the unity and the peace and the health that is there. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you will agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. And what mind is that? Not mine or yours, but the mind of Christ, which he says in Philippians chapter 2, that we would all have the mind of Christ, and it would be what governs the life of the body. Is knowing Him, loving Him, serving Him, and it not being about us. John Stott points out, uh, helpfully I think, that Paul is appealing here in this section then to three things. He's appealing to their vigilance, uh, to their separation, and to their discernment. Vigilance, separation, and discernment. The vigilance we see in 17 when he says, I appeal to you brothers, watch out. Pay attention. Be vigilant. Watch out for those who cause division. There are those in the church. Paul's writing to the church. There are those that can be in the church that can be a threat to the unity and the health of the church. And he says we need to be vigilant. There are are people who create obstacles, he says. They they cause division and they create obstacles. Things that are contrary to doctrine. They put hindrances in the life of the church. Hindrances to our progress and our growth. Hindrances to our peace and our purity. Hindrances to our ministry. They're a threat to unity. We've had a number of controversies through the years. Stuff comes up, right, in the life of the church. If you've been here for any length of time, we could make you a list. Stuff we've been through. Every church, you know, just like every family has a history, right? So we've been through a lot of things through the day. And what I can tell you about them when these things arise, whatever they are, what they do is they siphon off time and energy, right? They siphon away attention, Right? They siphon away uh, all that we need. Our, our time is wasted. There are extra meetings. Emotions are spent. Uh, we're emotionally worn out. There's a lot that goes on. And frankly, a lot of other stuff just get paused. You don't have time to talk about the future of the ministry and the direction of things and what needs to be... Ev- right? We're too busy putting out fires. We're too busy handling you know, those things, trying to protect the, the unity and the peace of the church. Time spent debating and putting out fires. And it's necessary 
it, it is necessary. That needs to happen. In verse 17, he says there are these things that come up, divisions that create obstacles, and they're contrary to doctrine. They are a threat to the truth as it's lived and as it's preached in the life of the church, and it needs to be dealt with. We see churches that don't deal with their junk. And it does interfere with the witness. Jesus says, I want them to be one. I want them to be united. and I want them to have the same mind that is in Christ so that the world will know that you have sent me, right? It's part of our witness. It is part of the appeal of Christ to the world is the work that he does in forming and shaping a church. And these things that come up that are contrary to sound biblical doctrine and ethics have to be dealt with. And so the church, and that's you and I, not just me or the elders, you know, but we, the church, has to be vigilant. This command comes to the church to be vigilant, to pay attention to these things so that they don't take root in the life of the church, any church. They can happen at a large scale. It can happen at a small scale. What I mean by large scale, well, we know the Methodist church right now is going through a split. Right? That it is, it is splintering, and a lot of denominations have splintered. We exist because the Presbyterian church splintered, and we're the splinter. Right? So, sometimes, I mean that in the most loving, gracious way possible. But to stay faithful, the church was going to things that were contrary to biblical and sound doctrine. And so in order to stay historically, biblically, orthodox, we had to part ways. And we exist so that we can be historic orthodox Christians according to God's word. And so there are these kind of splits, but sometimes those things happen because early on we weren't vigilant. And things take root, and things are allowed. Things fester, and they're not dealt with. And when they're not dealt with, Where there is the root, there will ultimately be the fruit. And whole denominations can splinter, but it can happen on a small scale. Within our own church, it can cause problems, and individual churches split. Back in the late, early 80s, late 80s, early 90s, this church had a small split. They can happen. And how do we avoid getting to those places and I think he's telling us here, we, there, there will be those, and you need to be aware of that. Sometimes when things are going on, we need to pay attention because it may not be as innocent. It may not be that thing you just look the other way. These are, there are things that have to be dealt with, things that are contrary in, in a small scale. Then he, he does use the word, when he says contrary to doctrine here, the word actually that's translated contrary here is para. Um, which means to, to be alongside, to be parallel, is two things that run side by side. So he says it actually can be things that are uh, alongside doctrine. In other words, there are oftentimes, and this happens in every church, believe it or not, uh, things that are uh, alongside doctrine. In other words, we add things, we emphasize things that, that the Bible doesn't emphasize. Been in churches where like a big thing going on is it's out of proportion, it's lopsided. It's either not in the Bible even, or it's not as important in the Bible as you're making it out to be. In other words, we make a big deal about things the Bible doesn't make a big deal about. We stress the wrong things. 
We're driven, and often this, we're driven by our own ideas and our own ego, the thing that we get a hold of. Or, and in the end, it's not in the interest of Christ in the church. In the end, it is someone's personal agenda. The church can split over minor matters. It's happened. And surprising to me as often as not when some folks are just willing to wreak havoc. They don't care the consequences. They, they don't care what it is doing to the church. The church must remain vigilant. If we're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is a vigilance that is a grassroots movement. That is, a grassroots means it starts with you. It starts out there. Why? Because I'm often the last one to know things. I'm often the last one to find out. They're like, well, you probably already know. I'm like, I had no idea. Nobody tells me anything. As Jesus teaches church discipline to the church, and church discipline is how to keep the church on the straight and narrow. Like we discipline our children, it's not just negative, right? Teaching, you know, disciplining our children is giving them a bedtime, right? It, it, it's the discipline like of an athlete. They, they, there are parameters on what they eat and when they go to bed and how they train, and we do it with our children. Discipline is that whole giving them like, you know, our, our, you got to eat vegetables and you do have to go to bed on time. And yes, you're going to have to, you know, we have ways that we discipline our children. We're training them to be adults, right? We're training them to, to live in a way that is healthy. And so in the church, discipline starts there. I'm doing it right now. I'm, I'm, I'm taking God's word and applying it to his people. And this is the way that we go. It's the first step. As Jesus teaches church discipline, the congregation itself, that is you, are the first line of defense. You are the first layer uh, of protecting the church in things. In Matthew chapter 18, we, Jesus takes us from you know, a, an individual sin all the way up to someone being excommunicated from the church. Uh, and, and there's this process that he takes us through. And how do we handle problems in the life of the church? But it starts individually. He says, if your brother sins against you or in front of you, go and tell him his fault. You and him alone. Right? It starts out there as we love one another and speak the truth to one another and speak into each other's lives and hold each other accountable and you hear something in small group or somebody shares something with you over here or somebody says something or he does something or you see and he says, if it, see, oh, I guess it's the thing, if you see something, say something. Um, that we do speak, and this is not nitpicking people to death and like, you know, this is not like, you know, where we hound each other. But this is where there, there, there are things that need to be addressed in the life of the church. And it doesn't start with the pastor. If I show up, it feels like a sledgehammer, right? You know what I say? That's what I'm saying. People coming in my office, they're like, I feel like I'm in the principal's office or something. You know, it's like, you don't want it to start with me. You don't want me getting involved, you know, in, in. But for me not to get involved, for it not to rise to that level very often, then we do have to do it. Jesus doesn't say, I hear people tell me, you know, that's really awkward. Or it probably wouldn't do any good. If I went and talked to him, it wouldn't do any good. Or, you know, I don't really want to do that. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what? If it doesn't feel awkward, you should do this. Right? Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you think it would do some good, you should talk to them. Right? Jesus says, if it happens, you, you are called 
to address it. And it says that if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, then you take one or others, two others along. The circle is still small. There's still only a few of you involved, but you are addressing it. And you're bringing accountability because there are others who are involved in the conversation now. You might bring a pastor, or you might bring a friend, or you might bring your elder. Separation, he says, that may not work. Um, separation, he says, after this, that, uh, that you should, uh, there are these who are, who are creating division and creating obstacles, and they're contrary to doctrine, that what you've been taught. And he says, ultimately, avoid such people. Avoid them. This is a hard teaching, but it is necessary for the peace and purity of the church. Now, this separation, this avoiding of them, here it's shorthand. Uh, Paul has written elsewhere, and so I would say this usually when he says if there, this is going on, first we should try to address it, Matthew 18, couple times we should try to address it before we avoid them. He actually says this in Titus 3, 10 and 11. He says, as for a person who is stirring up division, same issue. It happens in, since the dawning of the church until now. There are human beings and sinners that make up the church, and so we're going to have this issue. And he says, but as for that person that is out there stirring up division, he says, after warning him once and then twice, right, so we don't just avoid them, we, we address them, Matthew 18. You talk to them once, you bring one or two, uh, and then we're going to tell it to the church. But he says it's after once, or tell them once or twice, then they have nothing more to do with them, avoid them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he's self-condemned. See, there's a soberness about the unity of God's people. And that sowing division, the ones who are stirring up division, he says it is warped and sinful. And that person is self-condemned when they do damage to Jesus' body, to his people, his blood-bought people. And so in Matthew 18, it goes on, if you've addressed him with one and you've brought a couple of others, he says, if you refuse to listen, you tell it to the church. We're Presbyterians here. Um, if you are in a congregational church, when they say tell it to the church, they mean bring them up front and tell it to everybody. We think it starts with leadership. When it says tell it to the church, we believe in elected leadership. We have a session made up of elders, and we believe you should tell it to the leadership of the church so that the church, in its representative leadership, can address the issue. And you do get the, at some stage, the leadership involved. But then it says, if you tell it to the church and they won't respond even to the pastors and the elders, they won't respond to the spiritual authority that God has placed over them if they won't uh, repent. And, you know, all we're looking for says, if, you, if he listens, you've won your brother. Right? All we're looking for is to start following Jesus and to move in the right direction. But he says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be as a, textile, a Gentile or tax collector. He says, then have nothing to do with them in the sense of church, in the sense of it doesn't mean we treat people poorly. It, it means as a part of the fellowship, as a member of the church, we treat them as an outsider because they're acting in a way that is harmful to the body, in a way that is unchristian, and they're unrepentant when they're called on it, and when even their leadership calls them to it. 
It's strong language for those who are creating division. There's so many, as I said, so many passages. I had a bunch more in here, and I had to, the last thing I do before I preach is delete stuff. Um, So I took a bunch out. You get what I'm saying. Leadership cannot allow someone to remain who is openly living and teaching things that are contrary to the Scripture. And the leadership deals with those things. Whether it's moral failure or theological error, those things are addressed in the life of the church as church discipline. And it's necessary. We, we can't allow it to go on. Why verse 18? He says, because these folks who are allowed to continue to say and to do these things, such a person, they don't serve the Lord Christ. They are not advancing the purposes of Christ and his kingdom and his church, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. If they are allowed to continue in the life of the church, there are those who will be harmed by it. Right? There are, it's like a gangrene, or, or as Jesus says at other times, and Paul, it's like leaven. He says, remove the leaven from among you. It will affect the whole loaf. It will grow. It will be a problem. You go from divisions to factions to split churches. Separation is necessary to protect the flock from sin and error. This always comes with the invitation to repent. At every approach, from your first approach to bringing one or two to the leadership coming, the approach is always to call people to repentance into Christ. Even after you've separated, even after you begin to avoid them and saying you are not following Jesus, there's always the invitation to come back. There's always the invitation to repent and to return. So I'm going to say one last note. I debated whether to go this way or not, but to say we, all, we, we need to be careful this way in the life of the church, but also in the age of media. I was just say we need to be careful what we're listening to and what we're allowing on our TVs and in our, as we're reading online and watching online and doing. We have so much access to so many things and to so many places, and so much of it is terrible. Some of it's good. There is good stuff, don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm saying we need to be careful. He's going to tell us here in a minute, we need to be wise about what is good and innocent as to what is evil. We need to be discerning people. That's the next thing that we're saying here that we also need to note then um, and, and being wise because many of them are smooth and dangerous. How do I know they're smooth and dangerous? Because there's millions of people watching them. These people are rich. People are giving them their money. And they're on TV. So they're smooth. But a lot of them are heretics. And I'm going to list a few here. I pulled these. I was using James Boyce's commentary. Uh, and so some of these are dated. But it gives you the idea that the things that people are saying that you may be really like, oh, well, that sounds good. You know, being prosperous and, you know, God blessing me all the time and giving me the best parking spots. That sounds good. I like that. Right? So we, we're listening like God, God, you know, like you're the princes of the world and everyone will serve you. Kind of like they're telling you like that just how... You know, and then they slide in there things like, Kenneth Hagin, you are as much the incarnation of God as Jesus Christ. Smooth talk, you're in there, you, you know, and then people believe. People get pulled in. Robert Tilton, he's dated. He would say being poor is a sin when God promises prosperity. Only an American can say that. 
Right? That doesn't fly in Central America and South America and Nigeria and Africa and places, you know, in rural India and rural China and to tell them poverty is a sin. Like, you know, being a Christian, you have to be... There, there is a twistedness. Joel Osteen says similar. God wants us to prosper financially and to have plenty of money. And this is to fulfill his destiny for us. Tell that to the church we support in Choroba, Uganda. That is a cruel thing to say. Frederick Price says, God has to be given permission to work in this earth, this earth realm on behalf of man. God needs our permission. Yes, you are in control. I think he's still on TV. This is just all to say, stuff gets said, whether it's on TV or in a small group or we're in places and conversations that you're in, And we need to be vigilant and to pay attention, to use discernment, which is what he's saying in verse 18, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you and I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, right? Know your Bibles, know the ethics that are taught there, know the truth as it is about God and think biblical thoughts about him. Right? Think biblical thoughts about all of these issues, right? Because that is the safe ground on which we walk. We go astray when we aren't paying attention. Now, some conflict is healthy and necessary. I'm not saying we don't ask questions. I'm not saying that we don't look for accountability. I'm not saying that, you know, we don't need to work through some issues. You know, you might hear the robber shutting down all, you know, you know, questions about it. No, he says be wise and discerning, right? And to pay attention. And I'm saying there are things we need to work through and we work through them as we must. This is not unquestioning obedience. It's, it's just the opposite. It's to be vigilant to potential threats as a church and as leadership. So to be vigilant, to watch out, but also serve Jesus. <laughs> right? So we're going to be vigilant and watch out. We're going to serve Jesus and hope in the God of peace. Um, and so in serving Jesus, he, in, in all of the, what we talked about last week, is he is greeting all these different people. He was basically recognizing all the people whose service he's aware of in the life of the church, people that he loves, people he's labored alongside of, people that were in prison with him. It is sobering to realize that there may be people in the church who are not serving Jesus, but their own appetites and their own desires. Sometimes you can tell the difference by the fruit that it bears. Cranfield says when he says, there are those in the church, verse 18, uh, there there are such persons that are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ. They're in the church and they're part of things, uh, but they're not serving the Lord Jesus. They're serving, he says, their own appetites, their own desires. They're serving themselves. Cranfield says that that this means that they're serving their own appetites in the sense of they're serving themselves. They're being a a willing slave to their own egotism. This is a thing that we're all susceptible to, by the way. We all love our own ideas, do we not? I love my ideas. I think they're great. I think you should think they're great, too. Right? We love our ideas. We love to think we're right. 
right? I like to think I'm right about things, right? I, I love to get my own way. <laughs> and it's really healthy for me not to, right? And this is where it comes down. We may all, in some sense, love that, but it's, the issue is when those folks love their own ideas too much <laughs> and they start to damage the church in pursuing them and speaking them to think that they are right over against the leadership of the church to get what they want for things to be done the way they want them done to get their own way. And it be, starts to become in that they're not any longer serving the Lord Jesus because a Christian, we have surrendered our will to the will of God. Not my will, but thy will be done, O Lord on earth as it is in heaven, right? The Christian surrenders his will to the will of God and to following and serving the Lord Christ, you know, to the building of his kingdom and the edification of his people and the, the peace and unity of the church and the gospel expansion in the world is the heart of the believer and not the focus of their own little kingdom. And so Paul draws a clear contrast between these folks who are not serving the Lord Christ in their attitudes and the, the, the way they're going about things. But in verse 19, he says, but your obedience is well known. Your service. They're not serving the Lord Christ in what they're doing. But he says, brothers, I'm not talking about you. Your service, and I would say to most of you that I know, your service is well known. It is well known and appreciated. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you and I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And though there is, uh, there is good service and your obedience is well known, you need to be vigilant and, and wise and discerning or it won't always be that way. Your obedience is well known. You are serving the Lord Jesus. And he says, and I rejoice over you. Your obedience is a joy and a blessing. Right, that comes out clearly in all of his greetings as he's writing to you, my beloved so-and-so and my beloved so-and-so and so-and-so who worked so hard for the church and so-and-so who was imprisoned with me and so-and-so who risked their lives for me and, you know, the, and he, the, so-and-so and the church that meets in their house and their hospitality and his love and his joy over God's people is, is rich. It's no wonder he rejoices as a leader over their love and service. He calls them beloved. And so when he's greeting them and as he's rejoicing over their service, it's not as abrupt as it seems to be. He spent all these verses rejoicing over them just as he is saying and rejoicing over their service and their well-known love to Christ when he thinks there is a danger that lurks in every church. It's lurked in the church in Corinth, it lurked in the church in Rome, it lurked in churches ever since then, it, is lur it lurks in the Methodist church, it lurks, maybe not at this moment, I don't know, but it lurks in our church. Or at least it is something that we need to be vigilant about so I can see where his, actually his great love and joy over the church leads him to give the warning to vigilance and discernment in the life of the church to preserve and maintain the peace and the purity of the church. It's a sobering thing to watch out within the church for those whose service is selfish and whose service is creating obstacles for everyone else. And so in verse 19, he says, I do want you to be wise as to what is good, innocent as to what is evil. 
Jesus is and his church are not served well by slavish obedience. Right? Blind obedience. It's not what I'm talking about. Like I said, there's room for questioning and there's room we need to healthily iron sharpen iron in the life of the church, but we need to be we need to, and so he's saying we need wise and discerning Christians. Wise to what is good means that we see it and we and we love it and we live it. And innocent to what is evil means we see it and we hate it and we avoid it. Right? And that's the discernment that allows us to, to separate experts in knowing and doing what is right and amateurs in doing evil and avoiding it. And I think ultimately what he is saying that you should be Berean Christians. Now, these Jews were more noble than those that were in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things are true. We resist the devil with the truth. We resist the smooth talk with the truth as we find it in his word. And as we know the truth and we know our Bible and we understand these things, we can avoid and be innocent to the things that are astray. So we're to be vigilant and we're to serve Christ. And we're to hope in the God of peace. I love this portion in verse, verse 20. I, I started out to do more than that today, but I just said I'm, we need to camp here at the end for a few minutes. The God of peace is going to crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. And then he goes back to greetings. Right? He goes into greetings over here. And we got this little interlude. And then he goes back to greetings and his final benediction. <clears throat> and so he, he, he inserts this here as, as he talks about watchful for those who would divide and destroy the church and put obstacles in the way of its life and its ministry. And he says, but let me, you know, he ends this whole thought on a, on a word of hope, which is the God of peace is going to cr- soon crush Satan under your feet. There may be false teachers and unbelievers who will trouble the peace of the church. But we do not need to live in fear. Vigilant, yes. Fearful, no. It's 2,000 years later and people have been troubled in the church that whole time. And the church is is as strong as it has ever been. Jesus is building his church against the very gates of hell. And the God of peace, he says, is going to crush Satan under your feet. See, the God of peace brings peace through victory. He brings peace to his people and to his church, but not to his enemies, other than by crushing them and winning the victory over them uh, and reigning supreme so that his peace is the peace of the church. There's peace through his victory. And so right in the middle of these greetings, Paul feels compelled to both offer the warning but to remind us that the battle is spiritual. You may be talking about these people, but understand the battle is spiritual. It is Satan that has to be crushed underfoot. There is an enemy that prowls about, as Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. That's what Paul is telling us here, right? He says, and Peter says the same thing, be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him, be firm in the faith. And that seeking to devour, they do it what? As these guys do it with smooth words and flattery and they deceive the hearts of the naive. How does he devour? He lies and he deceives. He has no power. 
except to lie and to deceive, and he leads people astray. And so we have to be watchful and vigilant. And we resist him, and when we resist his lives and stand in the word, we, we are firm in the faith as it was delivered to the saints. As he says here, what's going on is contrary to the scripture, but we need to stand firm in the faith of the scripture. The enemy, we have an enemy that is behind all that goes on against the church. But God of peace is going to crush Satan, he says, under your feet that our sovereign Lord reigns. He says his victory is certain. There will be those who trouble your peace. The Satan roars like a lion seeking who he would devour. There are those who will lie and deceive and flatter and be smooth, but the victory is certain. The church is the body of Christ. This victory was first spoken, what Paul is saying here really is simply repeating the victory that God declared in Genesis chapter 3. The victory first spoken of to the seed of the woman. He told Eve that the the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. That language, Paul's just picking up on it. He will crush the serpent's head. He will be crushed under foot. And it will be his foot because he he will injure the heel, but he will crush the serpent. And so the victory is ultimately, we're talking about one by Jesus in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his reign, his ascension, in his reign over the church by his spirit and his word in the truth of the gospel and that it comes to us in his word. He is building his church against the very gates of hell. And so the context for this crushing of Satan underfoot here relates to the dangers that threaten the church's unity. Things that are contrary to sound doctrine and to the Bible, he says. Right? That their, their, their divisions are things that are contrary to sound doctrine. And so the context here is that he will, by the word and by the spirit, preserve his church. So that we stand firm in the faith, resisting the devil and his lies. Satan is a liar and a deceiver. And when we are wise to the good, through the word of God, standing firm in this faith, we resist him. We crush him underfoot. The victory, Jesus' victory is one that we share in some sense as he works in the life of his church by word and spirit. Revelations 12, 11 says that they have conquered him, the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony according to the word of God. Is there any more appropriate word that can be spoken to the church in any age? In every age, but this word that our God reigns? That God will crush this Satan underfoot, that the victory is his. We're reminded that the evil in the world, there is evil in the world, there is evil even in the church. There's a personal evil that is called by the name of Satan, the devil, and his fate is written and sure. He will crush the serpent under his foot. And, Rome, and Revelation tells us of his ultimate destiny. But we have, what he is telling us right here, is despite those who would trouble the church, we have a victory in Jesus. Right? He says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us by his word and his spirit in us and in the church. 
Jesus is building his church against the gates of hell. And we share in his triumphs as we love his word and preserve his word and stand firm in the faith and resist the enemy and the lies and the obstacles and those things that are raised up against us. But this, my friends, is a foretaste of a great and terrible day of the Lord. This crushing as we have victory and we see the church persevere and we see the church stand firm in its faith and that Jesus has kept the people for himself as he builds his church. But that crushing and that judgment is but a foretaste of that great and terrible day when Christ will return in all of his power, in all of his glory, and the crushing will be final and permanent and full. The knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But until that day, we live in verse 20. Where the grace of our Lord and the confidence that the God of peace will crush Satan underfoot. And that it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May He be with you. Right? It is this present grace of Christ with us and with His church. It is by Him that we persevere. By His grace. He says, by His grace, His love for His church, His presence in His church. In other words, He grounds our hope in the presence and power of Jesus. In the end, it is not our vigilance. The danger when we get these kind of commands and we talk about these things, you need to be vigilant and you need to continue to serve Christ and let that be a, a joy. And, you know, we start to think that we've got it under control. I can do these things. But the shortness is where he goes is that it's not you who's going to win the victory and it is not your grace that is going to preserve the church. Ultimately, he is telling us it is only the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with us that is able to protect and preserve his church and to crush his enemy. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. And I believe when he's talking about here, again, these, these divisions and obstacles that are contrary to doctrine, teachings and things that are set up against the knowledge of God, the true biblical doctrine. And he says in 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of our warfare then are not of the flesh. Right, as we think about everything that I've said this morning, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. In the context, the strongholds is this. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And that's what he's talking about here. These kind of things that rise up, arguments and lofty opinions and people full of themselves and full of things that are unbiblical. And he says the weapons of our warfare are mighty and powerful to pull down those strongholds and to protect and to preserve the church, but the battle is spiritual. And it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that is with us that preserves and protects his church, God dwelling in the midst of his people, Christ in us who is the hope of glory, so that we have a victory in Jesus, so that we are more than conquerors, by His Word and by His Spirit, we will stand firm in the faith. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You that it is You who are building Your church. That it is You who have called us into existence one by one. That it is You by the Word of Your Gospel and the outpouring of Your Spirit that has knit us together as a body and a family in Christ that you have done it and that you are doing it, that you are building your church. Help us to see that, but help us, Father, to be wise.
and vigilant in protecting and maintaining and preserving the peace of your church. Father, may we serve you and make sure that we're not serving ourselves in our own opinions and our own preferences, but that we serve you and your church, that we may not be an obstacle to what you are accomplishing, and that the glory and the honor may be yours as your church thrives. For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.